ratifying the Kigali Amendment, along with passing the Inflation Reduction Act, is the strongest one-two punch against climate change any Congress has ever undertaken. I'm Chris Stemp. I played shortstop. I'm Donnie Stemp. I played first base. It's the week of October 10th, 2022. The atmospheric carbon level is 415.33. Welcome to the week on Earth. Um, I did play first base for a little while. I don't think you can qualify as playing baseball. <laughs> I've played baseball some. I'm not the star that you were as a youngster. Yeah, but like, okay, you know how mom is very um, complimentary of us? She would never say anything bad. This is how she defines your baseball career. Donnie was always fast. <laughs> and you know, like that, that doesn't mean like anything. So uh, that's right. I could run the bases. I played first base occasionally. And then I think I played left field. Yeah, that's fair. So how's your week? My week, my week on earth. Um, you know, redundant, monotonous. How about you? Uh, my week was pretty busy. So that's why this episode might be shoddy. No, no, it'll be great. Well, by busy, you mean you actually worked, right? I did. I worked a a job this week on a film set and actually, you know, doing the podcast and thinking a lot about climate. There was one aspect of this job that I really liked. On most film jobs, there's a lot of waste. Mm. You know, there's a lot of plastic. You know, there's a lot of water bottles. On this job, all the water was aluminum in aluminum cans. Oh, it's so nice to crack open a can of water. Oh, that's a really good point. Everybody on the set was thinking, first of all, it was hot and you're outside, but it it feels like you're opening a beer. <laughs> well, that's one way to look at it. And I mean, we did just learn in the recycling episode how much more beneficial aluminum is. So really, it is a guiltless pleasure to have that disposable water at your fingertips. Yeah, and it tastes so much better because it's in aluminum, it stays colder, and phthalates don't leach into your body and change your hormones. So why the plastic? I I just can't see it anymore at all, ever. And look, by the way, we should just clarify, because I don't think a lot of people know this. When you say a job, you were like in the desert filming a movie or something, right? I don't think people know what you do. Yeah, well, I, I, I can't talk about the specifics. Because <laughs> oh, I okay. signed an NDA. You signed an NDA. Okay, I got but it. I was on a film job. Got it. Cracking open delicious aluminum cans of water. Nice cold water. And now we've got to rush this episode out because the week happens every week. What the hell? Yeah, yeah, it does. I told you that before we started. So let's get into it. So this week, part two of our series on how we save the ozone layer turns out. We didn't. We solved the CF. <laughs> well, we we solved the CFC issue, and we created a new issue, which we are now in the process of solving. So, more on that big idea in just a few minutes. But first, it's time for, for the, the news, news of, of the, the week. week on Earth. On Earth. We're getting extra there. slow for you. This <laughs> We're time. getting there.
Our top story this week continues to be the aftermath of the devastation of Hurricane Ian in Florida. The death toll has hit 100 across three states, the most since 2017's Hurricane Irma, which killed 129 people. Rebuilding damaged areas will also be a challenge. The lack of flood insurance in the state is also a major issue, considering the amount of damage and the intensification of storms due to climate change. According to CNN, September was the wettest month on record in inland central Florida, where few homes have flood insurance. Only 2 to 4% of homes in Seminole, Orange, and Polk counties have flood insurance, and only a fourth of homes are covered in coastal Lee County, where Ian came ashore. A Seminole County commissioner, Jay Zimbauer, said he's never seen damage on this scale, as he called the storm a, quote, 500-plus-year event of quick rainfall in a short amount of time. And there's that 500-year thinking again, which DeSantis and some people are using, and it's not helpful. They are ignoring climate change. There will be more storms like this in a lot less time than 500 years. And if people can't imagine them or face this reality, adaptation and mitigation will be very difficult, painful, and costly. There was one Florida community, however, that did understand the science and potential impacts of climate change, and thanks to their foresight and planning, they escaped the hurricane with barely a scratch. According to NPR, the community of Babcock Ranch, just north of Fort Myers, was built with hurricanes and climate change in mind in 2018. The community is 30 miles inland to avoid coastal storm surges, Power lines are all underground, and retaining ponds protect houses from flooding. On top of that, the community never lost power during the storm, as it is entirely solar-powered from a nearby 870-acre solar farm. Babcock Ranch is one of the first showcase projects from the Kitson and Partners Real Estate Development Company, and this storm provided a proof of concept for the community's design, where the only damage from the storm was a damaged stop sign, a few street signs, and some knocked over palm trees. Isn't that cool? I don't understand why we don't do that all the time. Yeah, that town is getting a lot of attention for this story, rightly. My point is just that Florida and everyone has to consider climate change, and we can make these type of decisions much better. Well, what's crazy is I envision myself having a beach house in about 10 years Mm. when I get super famous and rich, Right. but now I don't know where to put it because everywhere you go, I feel like you're just waiting for it to get destroyed. Yeah, you might want to put it in Missouri. There we go. Two more quick stories this week. Following up on last week's story on the climate implications of the presidential election in Brazil between the Amazon destroying Bolsonaro and the Amazon protecting Lula da Silva. Lula did win the first round of the election, but unfortunately not by enough to prevent a runoff, which will now occur October 30th. According to The Guardian, under Bolsonaro this September, the Amazon lost a London-sized area of rainforest in that one month alone, as environmental criminals raced to wreck and plunder the rainforest before the possible change of the president. 41,000 forest-clearing fires were detected in September, a 147% year-over-year increase. The Climate Observatory's chief executive, Marcio Estrini, calls this a very dangerous moment and says that criminal syndicates of illegal loggers and ranchers can, quote, see that their president could lose the election, so they're taking advantage of this final stretch of Bolsonaro to tear down everything they possibly can. So really, we have to hope that Lula wins the election at the end of this month, and we will continue to follow that. Finally, 
Forbes reports on data recently uncovered by The Guardian that shows there have been 40,000 ghost flights in or out of the UK since 2019. These are flights that are completely or nearly empty and flying anyway, with the considerable carbon emissions that come with them. These flights averaged 130 completely empty flights every month since 2019, with another 35,000 flights flying at less than 10% capacity. The new report has rightly caused outrage among climate campaigners and shows the aviation industry cannot be relied upon to tackle the climate crisis and reduce emissions by themselves. It hasn't just caused outrage among climate campaigners. It should cause outrage among everyone because it's ridiculous. I mean, every time I'm on a plane, it's jam packed and it's the worst experience ever. Why can't you spread these things out a little bit? Well, no, they should be jam packed for climate. They're not as comfortable. But why is why does that happen? Because we're stupid. Mm hmm. What's the idea? Hey, what's the big idea anyway? What's the idea? What's the idea? What's the idea? What's the big idea? What's the big idea? I wonder what's the big idea. Let's get into the big idea. What happened after we solved the ozone hole? Um, Chris, I also, well, I hate to break it to you, or I love to break it to you. I said this was part two. This is actually going to be part two of three. We're going to keep going on this. We're going to keep going. What do you call this when it's TV? It's a mini series. I'm in the mini series. It's a mini series. It's, a... it's an ozone mini series. All right. It's a three episode arc. A, a, a mini series about the big O hole. Or the big A hole. Right. So why is this episode part two of the ozone hole story? Because the end of the story turns out to be just a chapter in the larger story. The whole story encompasses not only these CFCs and the people who invented them and the people who phased them out, it also encompasses the chemicals that came next and the damage they did to the greenhouse that is planet Earth. This episode will ask if we ended up making things better or worse, or if we just keep replacing every bad thing with another equally bad thing. We'll also discuss what lessons we can apply to the most important story of our time, our fight against climate change. So this time, for part two, let's start at the end of the beginning. The end of the story is that, that it all worked, you know, that, you know, the, the ozone layer is, is, is healing. We, we kind of did it. We got everybody around the table globally, set the agreements, found the replacement technologies and and made it happen. That's Jamie Lockhead, the director of the PBS documentary, The Hole, How We Saved the Planet. So it worked. We solved the hole in the ozone layer. Disclaimer, the ozone layer hole is projected to fully heal, but not until 2050 to 2070. That was my lawyer voice. I like it. If you didn't hear last week's episode, why? Why didn't you? Why didn't you listen? Why are you out of order? But if this is your first episode, we welcome you. And uh, please go back and listen. But if not, Chris, give them the quick recap. Thomas Midley Jr. invented synthetic refrigerant CFCs so that the refrigerators wouldn't blow up. But CFCs destroyed the ozone layer, which James Lovelock figured out with a little machine he built. 
Then Sherry and Melina measured, studied, and confirmed that CFCs were eating away at Earth's protective blanket. And they tried to warn the planet, but nobody listened, of course. But then, back in the days when everybody watched the same TV show together at the same time, everybody in America watched an episode of All in the Family, where a man yelled at Gloria and said that hairspray was going to give us all cancer and destroy the planet. And so then and there, we stopped buying hairspray. And then suddenly the political will was there. And so Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher actually agreed to solve the problem. And along with the entire UN and the amazing heroes who worked on the Montreal Protocol, the whole planet agreed to phase out CFCs and save the ozone layer. An amazing story. So what did that story teach us? Christina Theodoridi, policy analyst at the NRDC. Do you remember the ozone story? I remember quite a bit about that story, uh, mainly because it's a really fascinating one, because it shows how we have the ability to address really big environmental issues. Christina Theodoridi is a policy advocate for the Climate and Clean Energy Program at the NRDC and advocates specifically in this area of CFCs and HFCs. She also, and this is really cool, served as a Montreal Protocol Task Force member. Ozone plays a really important role in preserving human life and ecosystems on Earth because it reflects sunlight back into space so that, you know, not too much sunlight reaches the Earth's surface. And that balance is incredibly important. Phil McKenna, do you remember the ozone story? Well, I was a kid at the time, uh, but... It, it was pretty pretty amazing in that the globe, the planet did come together. Phil McKenna is a reporter at our favorite news site, Inside Climate News. And he's also written extensively on these particular issues. So unlike climate and carbon dioxide today, there are alternatives. If you, if you have to get off of CO2 and you are a fossil fuel company, you don't really have a lot of good options. Uh, it's essentially the end of your business if you have to stop burning hydrocarbons. Uh, that hasn't been the case for the chemical industry in that there are alternative chemicals. And in addition to that, it's actually had the opposite effect in that it's been a boon to industry to U.S. chemical manufacturers in particular because each time they've had to develop a new generation of synthetic refrigerants, they have been able to patent that new generation and sell those refrigerants at a very high cost. Uh, they put a lot of R&D into developing them, but then they can make a lot of money uh, for the next decade or so while they are under patent and no one else can produce them. So having to go through, we're now coming up on our fourth generation of synthetic refrigerants. So instead of opposition from industry, it's really been welcomed by industry. And at the same time, you're getting this environmental benefit. So the stars aligned, the chemical companies bought in, and the political will followed. Christina Theodoridi, how did it happen and what lessons were learned? We are really hoping that we can replicate a lot of the components of that recipe, bring a lot of these ingredients uh, to solve more issues other than just ozone depletion. And there were a lot of things that contributed to it, uh, to, to this success. For one, there was consensus around the science. It took a while for that to happen, but it was shown very clearly that the source of the problem were these chemicals, the CFCs, and that we really needed to get rid of them in order to preserve this protective blanket, to preserve the ozone layer. The second 
component to it was that governments really decided to take action. It took global action. It took every single country in the world agreeing to deal with these chemicals. And then the third component was that industry came on board. Initially, in the early days when these discussions were happening, the chemical manufacturers who made CFCs, they were very much against any type of regulation. But they turned around because they found a way to see a future for themselves. They figured out how to make the alternative and therefore decided that it is in their own self-interest to actually work toward the common good of replacing these chemicals. So here we go. We solved that problem only to create another one. Phil, what happened when we replaced CFCs with HFCs? There's a few more twists and turns. The first replacement was HCFCs, hydrochlorofluorocarbons, which were less bad for ozone, and both CFCs and HCFCs were really bad for climate in addition to ozone. And they were eventually replaced with HFCs, hydrofluorocarbons, which don't harm the ozone, but are still pretty bad for climate. These chemicals were, were not harming the ozone layer, but they are incredibly potent greenhouse gases. All of them are. So CFCs were also incredibly potent greenhouse gases, and HFCs remain pretty bad, although we did make a step in the right direction. And we're talking about chemicals that are thousands of times more potent at warming the climate than carbon dioxide. So what that means is that even in very small concentrations, they can do a lot of damage to the climate. So we fixed one part of the problem and we made progress on another one, but now we have the technology and the know-how to move away from HFCs and really get rid of that climate problem as well as it relates to these specific chemicals. So do we have the social and political will again to make a dent in the potent short-term greenhouse gases like HFCs. Ladies and gentlemen, we introduce to you the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol. The Kigali Amendment is... Okay, wait, 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 wait. I think we can cut the Canadian anthem now. We're not in Montreal anymore. We're in Africa for the Gagali Amendment. Yes, I just like the the beginning and the, the dramatic drumming. And actually, we're just reusing a lot of the music from last week's episode because it works. It felt right. Oh, we should fire the producer. And I was busy this week. And so was the producer. Yeah. Anyway, the Kigali Amendment, an international agreement to gradually reduce the consumption and production of HFCs. And the idea was to build it off the success of the Montreal Protocol to use the human relationships and the trust established during the drafting of Montreal to expand the mission from simply protecting the ozone layer to the much larger issue of reducing greenhouse gases and solving climate change. The Montreal Protocol is an interesting thing because it's a very close, my experience of it is a very close-knit international group of people that have been working, many of them have been working on it, you know, virtually from the start. And they, they refer to themselves as a, as a family. They call themselves the Montreal Protocol family. And 
you can't discount the human factor that that was a very good group of people that did great work. I think what was the Montreal Protocol was very effective. It was breaking things down into chunks. And I think we can do that with, with climate change. And a, an example of a manageable chunk that is very doable is, is methane and the, and the short-lived climate pollutants. Methane, or apparently methane to Europeans, also known to some as cow farts, is another crucial short-term greenhouse gas we have to rein in. But we'll get to that on another episode. Today, HFCs are the culprit, the one that the Kamal, the Kigali Amendment is tackling. Phil, what's been going on with the Kigali Amendment here in the U.S.? So, yeah, Biden in his first days uh, issued an executive order calling for ratification of the Kigali Amendment. That's not something that the president can do. It has to be ratified or approved for ratification by the Senate and requires, like all the ratification of international agreements requires two-thirds majority vote or 67 senators. Uh, and getting 67 senators to agree on anything at this point in time, as I'm sure you know, is incredibly difficult. Um, but the Kigali Amendment has tremendous backing by industry, U.S. Chamber of Commerce, American Chemistry Council, uh, and a lot of other industry groups really want to see this passed because it is such a benefit for the American chemical and air conditioning industry. They figure the Kigali Amendment ratification of it uh, will increase, will add about 33,000 jobs, American jobs, and also increase U.S. exports by $5 billion a year. And Chris, this is where we get to our very exciting breaking news that we mentioned it in the last episode, but since all these interviews with Jamie and Phil and Christina, the U.S. Senate has ratified the Kigali Woo! Amendment. Party. Whoop, whoop. We'll, we'll insert some, yeah. some fun party, party music. Yeah. Why? We're not fun enough? This party isn't the vibe you're going for? Oh, it just seemed like a lot of work to... Okay. All right. <laughs> Kigali. Shh. <laughs> But yes, the Senate has voted to ratify the Kigali Amendment, joining 137 other nations to curb global warming. The agreement was finally ratified by the U.S. Senate on September 21st, just a few short weeks ago. Quite amazing news. I mean, I had been talking to our reporter here, Phil, about this when I interviewed him earlier in the summer, and we were just saying that we didn't think there was any way this could get passed. You know, we're about to have a, the midterm elections are coming and nothing usually gets done in this time. But somehow it did happen and it had to pass with a super majority in the Senate. 67 senators had to ratify it. What are you doing? Am I supposed to be paying attention? Yeah, you're supposed to be paying attention. I'm talking to you. <laughs> okay, go for it. Senators. Yeah, I said it took 67 senators and it ended up passing 69 to 27. You know, there's only 50 Democratic senators. All right. That means it took 19 Republicans. The game I want to play is what Republicans voted for Kigali. I'm on it. Any ideas? I actually don't know. I didn't. I haven't looked this up yet. I'm going to go with uh, Senator Schumer. <laughs> Senator... Abrahams, Senator McNichols. <laughs> am, I, am I good? I forgot my brother doesn't quite follow politics the same way I do. <laughs> I 
I mean, how many people can name senators, dude? Like, what is this? It's just you know, some of us like politics. You've you've heard of you've heard of Ted Cruz, right? <laughs> he definitely didn't vote for it. I think he did. We're gonna look it up right now. the The thing about the Kigali Amendment is it is good for business. So it really should have passed a hundred to zero, but it didn't. Let's see what senators voted for the Kigali Amendment. Okay, let's look for some Republicans who said yes. Uh, Boozman of Arkansas, good old booze. Richard Burr of North Carolina, Dickie oh, Burr, kind of Cassidy of Louisiana, mm-hmm. Susan Collins of Maine. Let's look, let's just skip ahead to Ted Cruz. Oh, Cruz voted no. And guess who's right? Yeah, you can always count guy. on Ted Cruz to be a slimy piece of. That guy is at now. I can say it. He's the worst. The worst. No. Oh, Marco Rubio, Rubio of Florida, voted yes. Good for him. Can we can we move on now? Like people yeah. have officially right. tuned out. Fine, fine, fine. Thanks. That's good. You want to know how to win listeners? Talk about senators and climate change. That's our secret sauce. <laughs> Popping us up those rankings daily. So that's our that's our update. We've joined these other countries. We will be phasing out HFCs. We were already on the way to doing it anyway, but now the formal treaty will just help get other countries on board. It will help solidify the rules for industry. It, it sends a strong signal to the international community that, yes, we're, we're fully on board. We're not only doing all the things that we need to do, but we've taken that additional step and we've ratified. From the business community's perspective, ratification is tremendously important because by tw- in 2033, any country that hasn't ratified Kigali is banned from exporting any of these refrigerants. So a big, big positive step, another win for the climate. Let's take these wins and keep fighting as the effects of climate change right now are only getting scarier and more intense. For the final word on this chapter, here's the one Senator Chris can name, Majority Leader Senator Schumer. This is a very good day. We have just passed the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocols on a strong bipartisan basis. Experts say that phasing out our use of HFCs will help prevent up to half a degree Celsius of warming by the end of the century. It's an easily overlooked victory, but a massive one, all coming from eliminating this family of dangerous chemicals which are a thousand times more deadly per molecule than carbon dioxide. It's a great story. Continuing to learn about a big part of what we talked about, you know, our childhood, understanding the ozone layer, what's happening, and as it has continued to progress, as technology has progressed. But the thing I don't understand is this is part two. It's still not finished. Like, what are you doing? I'm I'm building the suspense. Okay. For part three next week. 
Next week, we are going to finish this story. We're going to learn about the next generation of cutting edge refrigerants, chemicals that cool your food and your house without destroying the ozone layer or warming the planet. We're going to sneak into your house and examine your refrigerator and your air conditioner. We're going to see how we can all help in the phase out of HFCs. We'll dive into the saga of what happened to me when I tried to replace my air conditioner. Dun, dun, dun. And we'll talk much more with Phil McKenna and Christina Theodoridi. Is that a cliffhanger? Do you want to know what happened to my air conditioner? I actually do. Well, tune in next week and you will find out. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to follow and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Tell a friend, send it up on Instagram or Twitter or a smoke signal, whatever it is to get the word out so we can save this planet. The Week on Earth is produced by Elise Louie with music by Amy Eileen Wood. Special thanks to this week's guest, Phil McKenna of Inside Climate News, Christina Theodoridi of the NRDC, and Jamie Lockhead, the director of The Whole, How We Save the Planet. See you next week, right here on Earth.